This is certainly one of, if not the most unpleasant stories in the Bible. And a lot of you have been asking me, Tyler, how are you going to handle that story? Well, the same way we handle every story is with respect, but also making sure we fully grasp the emotional impact that it's trying to communicate. And also uh, recognizing this is God's truth. He put it there for a reason. And we teach verse by verse through the Bible. It's not the only way to do it. But the reason we do it, among others, is it keeps us from skipping stuff. And this is certainly one of the passages you might want to skip if you had your druthers. But we're going to look at all three chapters here, 19 through 21. This is the end of the book of Judges. And if you recall from our very first study here, the book of Judges covers approximately 400 years from the time of the end of the conquest under Joshua to the rise of Samuel, Saul, and then, of course, David. Approximately 400 years. A lot of these stories have overlapped with each other, as we mentioned. We're even going to see that this story here may have taken place at the beginning of the period of the Judges rather than the end, depending on how you interpret a specific verse in here. And this book has been all about the downward spiral, right? We've talked an awful lot about the downward spiral of the book of Judges, how things have just gotten worse and worse and worse. There's been that repeated formula where the people sinned against the Lord. God judged them by handing them over to their enemies. They cried out to God. God provided a judge who delivered them from those enemies. They served the Lord for a time, and then it started all over again. And it's been getting worse and worse. Each cycle of each story of the judges has gotten worse. And I've tried to emphasize for us that the judges were indeed heroes. Samson was a hero. Jephthah, Barak were heroes of the faith. Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. But as we have seen, they were increasingly flawed as you we went through the book. Starting with men like Othniel and Ehud, about whom the Lord really had nothing negative to say. Until you get to men like Samson, which was about 50% positive example and 50% negative example, wasn't he? And the country was deteriorating under this time, and that is the lesson you're supposed to get. Now, that takes us through chapter 16. Chapters 17 through 21 contain a dual epilogue. There are two rather gruesome stories that take place first in chapter 17 and 18, and then in chapters 19 through 21, that provide some of the most egregious examples of sin in Israel during this time. Last week we saw the first epilogue with Micah and the idolatry that he started in Israel with the descendant of Moses, you remember, and that the Danites abandoned their inheritance from the Lord and chose to worship this idol instead. And that was the religious failure. Now we're going to look at a moral failure in this second epilogue, although these things are, of course, inextricably connected. This is going to be a disturbing and horrifying narrative concerning sin and civil war in the land of Israel. This is the greatest example in the book of Judges of where Israel went without God, where they ended up after rejecting the Lord, and also where they went without a strong leader, specifically a king. And for ourselves, as we read this, this is a warning for our times. Because as I was studying this, I could not help but see parallels between ourselves, our times, and the story that is here. Ultimately, if we are not going to follow God in our everyday lives, we can only expect vile things to happen and continue to happen. And we should not expect God to support us in our endeavors and even our attempts to make things right if we have no intention of turning to the Lord and following Him as He's commanded us. So it's a long section tonight. There will be a lot of reading, but I think it's important to read every verse of this.
starting in chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is, Jerusalem, the name that it would take later on. He had with him a couple of saddle donkeys, and his concubine was with him. This is a rather mundane story, were it to take place anywhere else other than the land of Israel under the covenant of Moses. You see in this story how the land has become debauched. The land is completely abandoned, even ordinary morality and righteousness. We have this Levite. Remember, the Levites were those that were dedicated to service of the Lord in his tabernacle. And they would do this in shifts and they would do this, do this throughout the year to be a moral and spiritual example to all the nation, to be teachers of the law. But instead, this supposed servant of the Lord has taken a concubine, which let's be very clear about the definition here. A concubine is a woman with whom he has sexual relations to whom he is not married. A live-in girlfriend, we might call this today. Fornication is the biblical word. She cheats on him, and she leaves, and she goes back to her father's house down in Bethlehem in Judah. Notice, a very significant place. Ruth and, and Samuel are going to deal with Bethlehem quite a bit, as you know. It calls him her husband there, but don't be tripped up by that word. They were not married as they ought to have been married. They're living in sin. And he follows her back to Bethlehem to retrieve her. He's got all these donkeys. He's got his servant. And she welcomes him back. It is entirely possible that the reason this is trying to communicate she welcomed him back is because now he's got donkeys and servants. Maybe he's made his money and she's ready to have him back. If that is the case, it just makes the story that much worse. But not only this strange and, and sinful sexual relationship, but the long days of this shameless feasting and drinking demonstrate the sensuality of the land of Israel. This is a passage that really leans into the sinfulness of gluttony and drunkenness here. Because, hey, we're celebrating three days, not for a fourth day, not for a fifth day. And you, you felt how it was almost tedious reading it. The, the sense you're supposed to get from it is, man, these guys sure like to eat. Eating and drinking and sexual immorality characterize this people. Because of the idolatry that had been evidenced and demonstrated last week, the people have become as wicked and vile as the Canaanites they had displaced. And this lifestyle of sin that we're seeing in a, remember, a rather mundane story. Nothing really spectacular has happened here. 
This is how normal life was in Israel at the time. And it is going to lead to terrible trouble. Even though everybody in this story is treating a Levite who is a drunkard, a glutton, and a sexual fornicator as normal. Doesn't matter what society deems normal. What matters is what God has to say. And I don't need to persuade you that we live in a similar day. While we are not engaged in outright idolatry, we have a different form of aberrant religion. We have a godless religion. We've decided we're going to try our best to live as if God was not real. And you have seen the moral fallout from that. If there is no lawgiver, there is no law. And I have no need, no need to prove that beyond the fact that ever since we decided there would be no lawgiver, lawlessness has only increased exponentially ever since we made that decision. Even though everybody treats it as normal. Every conceivable kind of immorality can be found in the United States of America which is a large place, and I know not everywhere does that, but it is pervasive. Even the sin that this Levite has committed here, this fornication, this cohabitation before marriage, which is so accepted and so tolerated and winked at, not just by churches, but by mothers and fathers of their sons and daughters who are living in that sin. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. So don't spend your time listening to these folks online that think marriage is a, is a sham and it's a patriarchal institution or it's a bad deal for men. No, sir. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. We should be virgins when we come to our marriage bed for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The very sin in this passage that was overlooked and hardly even commented on by this woman's father is not hardly looked at or commented on in our own society. We think we can live however we like and never reap the consequences. We are impossibly naive in that way. We are surprised at why things keep getting worse and why people's lives keep getting ruined and we think another pill or another college credit will fix the problem. And we never think of going back and actually correcting the way we live. God's commandments are right and we should keep them because they are right and because they come from God. But never forget that God's commandments are also good. God doesn't command things arbitrarily. He tells us to do things because they make your life better. Read the first chapters of Proverbs, how it talks about wisdom will be a garland for your neck. It'll be a thing that exalts your life if you will walk in the ways of the Lord. And unrighteousness, to the converse, will always cause trouble, as it will in this passage. Verse 11, when they were near Jabus, or Jabus, as it would have been said, Jerusalem will be its final name, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites. Notice they're called Jebusites because they're from the city of Jabus. And spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, and they turned aside there to go in and spend the night in Gibeah. And he went and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? He said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord. Isn't that ironic? But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, 
Peace be to you. Shalom. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. Is the story starting to sound familiar to you? So he brought them into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. They don't want to stay in the city of Jabus, which would be conquered by David and given the name Yerushalayim, which means the city of peace. They don't trust the Jebusites. They're foreigners. They don't belong in the land of Israel. And they didn't. They were one of the places that they had failed to conquer under Joshua and under the subsequent leaders. So they instead say, let's press on to the land of Benjamin and stay in the city of Gibeah or Ramah. And they move on to Gibeah there. And at first, everything seems to go pretty well. They are taken in by a hospitable old man who says, come and stay in my house. He washes their feet. He feeds them. They drink together. He shows them great hospitality. They probably were winding down the night thinking, boy, these are sure nice folks around here. However, you can sense the ominous undertones of this story, can't you? Something is amiss. Something's not right. And if you know your Bible, Genesis 19 starts to come to mind. When the angels came from Abraham and went into the city of Sodom, and Lot was sitting in the gate, and he said, where have you come from and where are you going? And they said, well, we're going to stay in the city. And righteous Lot said to them, do you have a place to stay in the city? Oh, we'll stay in the city square. And Lot said, not so. You come and you stay in my house. You do not want to stay in the city square out here. And you remember what happened in that story, and we start to worry, as well you should. Those parallels are intentional. You have this Levite, this lustful, lascivious Levite, scorning the city of the Canaanites, looking down on these foreigners, and yet we know from the story that he was living exactly like one of them. There was no difference between him and them other than their ethnic origins. And he was living exactly as they were. And even though he was going to the house of the Lord, we know that the house of the Lord had even become corrupted during such times. And again, you see a parallel to our own times. Like Israel, we as a nation, or even as individual churches, sometimes as communities, sometimes as individual people or families, try to hold on to the belief that we are favored by God long after we have abandoned his grace. As if... God's favor is something that is owed to us, something that we deserve. That because God once favored this people or because God pronounced a blessing upon us at one time, that we ought perpetually to have that and God cannot take it back and it does not matter how we then live. And we start to scorn those that are not like us. Christians that scorn the world for their sexual immorality and yet are engaged in just as much pornography as they are. Christians that engage in the same kinds of debauchery on Saturday night, but they come to church on a Sunday morning, so I'm not like those heathens, not like those sinners. Who hear about Islam or Hinduism or atheism and look at it with scorn and disdain. I can't believe they would believe something like that. And yet they, care, they obey no more commandments of the Lord than those people do. John the Baptist didn't have time for people like this. Do you remember? When the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law came to be baptized in the river, he sent them away, John did. I'm not baptizing you. He said in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you're really a righteousness tree, then let's see some fruit on the tree. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So don't come to me with your pedigree and think that that somehow gives you a leg up with God. The greatest of the prophets, and Jesus even said the greatest of all men who had ever lived, said, it does not matter even if you are descended from Abraham, God is not going to give you special favor if you walk in sin. So you might say, well, I'm an American. We're, we're a Christian nation. And not like those other countries over there. 
Or we live in the Bible Belt. We live in the South, not like those people up North and all those horrible things they do. Or, well, we're Calvary Chapel. We're not like these messed up denominations and all the things they're doing. What distinguishes a favored one, a favored nation, a favored church, or even a family or an individual is obedience to the Lord. I might go so far as to say you cannot inherit blessing from somebody. There are places in the Bible where God says, I will show extra grace because of a good man or a good woman. But don't think because your grandma served the Lord and prayed every day that that somehow transfers to your credit because it does not. This man that was living in every bit as much gluttony and sexual morality as those Jebusites had the audacity to stroll by their city and scorn them and refuse to even ask for their hospitality. And the same thing is true of us, my friends. If we think that we can live as godless people or a godless nation, and still expect the blessings of the Lord, or still expect that God will treat us differently from the way He treats anyone else, we've deceived ourselves. And I'd go so far to say that we indeed have deceived ourselves. Have you noticed how many people are trying to rebuild and rediscover what it was that made America so exceptional? And they're looking in all the wrong places? Sometimes they're coming right up against it. And they say, we need to rebuild the church. Yes, but not in the way you think. The church is only going to be rebuilt by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Going back and restoring traditions and institutions, as important as that may be, will never give anybody favor with the Lord. We should be careful about who we look on in scorn if we're dealing with the same things. Verse 22, and this is where it gets rather difficult, but the Lord put it in there for our edification. As they were making their hearts merry, read, getting drunk. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him, which is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning. No longer notice her husband. It's her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This is an exact mirror of the story of Sodom. Except this time, not only is this act performed, Israel acts far more wickedly even than the people of Sodom did. They said, Bring out this man that we may know him. They were going to gang rape this man. And they come out, no, don't do so wickedly. Take my daughter. Take his girlfriend. You can have them. 
But don't shame my guests by doing something like this. And he puts this woman out of the house and they rape her to death in the land of Israel. A wicked thing, it says. A vile thing. I should note, by the way, this is one of the ways we are absolutely certain that what was being talked about in the land of Sodom was indeed homosexuality. It was not a lack of hospitality, as some people have tried to soften that. He chops up her body to rally the 12 tribes. Does not say specifically that she died, but of course she did. The point is, I'm sending this out to the whole nation to say, we've got to do something about this. Here's what happens when you allow sin to flow unchecked. It always overflows its banks. Sin will always take you to a place you don't want to go to. And that if you could have seen it at the beginning, you would never in a million years have gone down that first step. We have this especially egregious, horrid sin from the tribe of Benjamin and the people of Gibeah. But you can see that even the wounded parties, even those that were hurt in this story, these men were cowardly, sexually immoral drunkards. It's all of a piece, capped off by the barbarism of cutting up this woman. It's all awful. You can compare which was worse, but at a certain point, you have to wonder why you bother. The culture that was demonstrated earlier by the weird relationship between the Levite and this woman and between her father and him and the constant partying and drunkenness. This culture of unbounded morality had made the occurrence of an act like this inevitable. If you are going to entertain constant low-level sin, eventually it will erode the foundations and there will be a great crash. As the Lord told Cain in Genesis 4 verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Do you know that that phrase where he says its desire is contrary to you or its desire is for you is sometimes used in the Bible to describe an animal when it's in heat? That there is a craving a lustful desire that sin has to master you and power overpower you and bend you to its will and the lord told cain if you do not get these everyday bits of jealousy under control it will lead to murder which is exactly what happened just as the constant as we might say low level sexual immorality of this nation prepared the ground for a thunderstorm like this one we cannot expect that a society which permits a constant flow of small violations will not one day commit a major one. If we are going to constantly teach our children that they are nothing, they come from nothing and they're going nowhere, you are going to raise nihilistic, wicked children that are going to inflict harm and death upon each other. If you're going to allow unchecked sexual immorality, you are going to come face to face with things that you never even imagined although the prophets of God did warn us in the time. You cannot expect in your life that if you allow the small drip of constant sin, even little things, as we would say, like your tongue being out of control or your temper being allowed to rage or little lies as if there is such a thing, you cannot expect that you can live that way and not one day do something that will shock even yourself until you correct the foundations of righteousness and you start pursuing Christ, 
not reluctantly trudging along as slowly as possible, but you start actively deciding every single day, I'm walking in his steps until we do that nationally in a community, as a church, as families, we will not stop seeing horrific acts of sin. Until we start giving our children something to live for, they're never going to think anything of taking another's life. If we don't start teaching people not just that male and female exists, but that the marriage bed should remain undefiled, we're going to continue to see the boundaries overflowed as it happened here. Well, we begin in chapter 20 now. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, which you remember that was on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. Notice how he cleverly covers over his own role in that story. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. Meaning they will send out a tenth of the army to go gather provisions in case it's a long campaign. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. So the other tribes come together, responding to the call, come before the Lord in Mizpah, although Benjamin stayed away, to hear the tale of what is done and to take action. And they do. They rally an army. They prepare to go to war. And they demand that the tribe of Benjamin hand these men over. But this is refused. And you see the tribes of Israel preparing for civil war against each other. We've come up against this several times. For example, when Gideon took the cities that had refused to help him. But this is a whole other level. Now on the one hand, this is a good thing. The people are responding to chastise another tribe that absolutely deserved chastisement and to obey the command that the Lord had said about what should be done with men who commit acts such as these. And they will do all of this in the name of the Lord and the Lord indeed will be with them as we're about to read. However, once again, you can tell something is rotten here. Something just doesn't feel right. Because although the people are responding correctly, it is a gut response to the outrage only with no intention of making inward change. It is a response of the stomach, not one of the heart. 
It is the response of how could someone do something like that with no thought of looking to the causes that might have brought them to such a place. Israel is showing itself here to be reactive rather than proactive. They are reacting to horrific things, but they are not taking action ahead of time to prevent such things. They hate unrighteousness, but they have not yet cultivated a love for righteousness itself. And it is this very attitude, the indifference to the fact that this man had a concubine in the first place, for example, it is that indifference that led to this war in the first place. 1 Samuel 15 tells us, as Saul told, or Samuel told Saul, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel is telling Saul, don't think that because you yourself have not committed some grievous thing that God does not see your heart. Did not our Lord himself teach us that it is the heart of sin that is as grievous as the action itself? That if you look upon a woman to lust with her, you've committed adultery in your heart? That if you insult or hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart? These men here that have approved of all manner of wickedness because somebody exceeded their arbitrary boundary, they felt entitled to be outraged. We ourselves live in a similar time. It is very, very easy to find shock and outrage against great evils that have been committed. And if you want to be honest about it, these are appropriate responses. When you hear of things that are being done to children in these hospitals, or you hear about some teenager that shot up a school, or you hear about the corruption among some government official or other, you should be outraged when you hear about the horrific things that go on. But we must not think that disapproval of the right things is the same thing as being righteous. Being Christian is not just being mad about all the right things or correctly identifying what category good and bad goes into. That's part of it. But that's just the basic, fundamental. The Bible expects even the pagans and the non-believers to be able to do that. You do not gain points with God by being repulsed by wickedness. As I said, when this, this transgender conversation came to the fore in our country, I tried to remind us, just because somebody stands up and says a man is a man is a, and a woman is a woman, that does not make them some great moral arbiter. That's the most baseline of possible baselines of righteousness. And yet we can walk around and because we're not committing some of these outrageous things we hear about, that we must be on the right side. But that, that's not going to redeem us. We sitting here and correctly identifying some of these things as wicked doesn't make us good people. Has anybody else been baffled by the fact that the church is now found on the same side with some of these same people that were raging and frothing at the mouth against the church only a generation ago? And now we're all excited that they're on our side and saying something nice about us? I don't need their help. I don't need their approval, nor do I want it. That just tells us that wickedness has gone so far that even common sense can't ignore it anymore. But the fact that somebody has acknowledged, well, you know, I, I think that people should stay married. Well, good for you. I believe there is such a thing as male and female. Congratulations. You want a prize? This ride against Benjamin is not going to redeem the people. Of course you should be outraged when a woman is gang raped to death. That's, that's how you're supposed to feel. That's normal conscience. But if you think that that's enough, it's not. It's insufficient. As we will see, verse 18, this is a longer section here, but this is a pivotal moment in Israel's history. They're going to go to civil war. 
The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, so God is speaking now, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? The Lord said... Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went out against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. About time. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes out to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the people of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Ma'aragiva. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. And now he's going to retell the story with a little more detail. But this is the same events here. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. Remember we just said that. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Gidom, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men fled and turned toward the, rock, toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. 
And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts and all that they found and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. And this is the battle. They're inquiring of the Lord at Bethel and God sent Judah out first, which if you recall was where the Levite and the concubine had first come together in this story. On the first day, though, even though God had told them to go, Benjamin killed 22,000 men. On the second day, they killed 18,000 men. Why? Because God was inflicting judgment, not just upon the Benjaminites, but upon the nation as a whole, because they were all complicit in this, as I have explained. But when they return to the, to the tabernacle, they weep and they seek the, seek the Lord's favor with sacrifices. Then he says, I will deliver Benjamin over to you. And you noticed in verse 28 that it mentioned that Phineas was there. I'll read that verse again because it is a matter of difference of opinion. It says, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before the Ark of the Covenant in those days. So there's a couple options of how we interpret this. Number one is that this makes this story very early, very early in the time of the Judges, before most of the other things that we've read. It would have been contemporaneous with Othniel and the story that we have at the beginning there because Phinehas was alive during the wilderness wanderings. The second option is that this is a different Phineas. He's a descendant of these men and he has the same name and it just doesn't clarify that for us. Or it could be that this was just a general note and I, I must say I, I lean towards this one although I'm not definite on it that he's commenting on the fact that it was Phineas at one time had ministered here. This is the same place that Phineas used to minister. But any one of those options I believe is a, is a fair one. It's not really relevant to the story but it is just a note that it gives us. Verses 29 through 36 gives us a condensed story of the battle. And then verse 36 through 46 gives us a more detailed version, which is on the third day, they attack with the main host and they fall back. So it's a feint and the Benjaminites are chasing them. 10,000 men went and attacked the city and began to lay waste to it. And when it began to burn and the Benjaminites turned and saw it, they closed in the middle and they began to defeat their army. You remember it had said 26,700 Benjaminite soldiers. 26,000 and then 700 chosen men with the slingshots, remember? Okay. It says that 25,100 of them were killed, which leaves us 1,600 left. It tells us that 600 remained after this was over. How do you account for the other 1,000? Probably they died on the first two days of the battle is the best way to understand that. But out of 26,700 men, you are left with 600 military-aged men left in this tribe. God uses this war to nearly destroy one of the tribes. Remember, the reaction was not incorrect. It was just not introspective. It was not self-aware. And the Lord is going to nearly destroy them. But he's also chastising and teaching humility to these other tribes. You can't act like you're above them because you are engaged in the same things. Even though you have not crossed this line yet, you're following the same track and you deserve my judgment just as much. They were not innocent in these matters. The prophet Hosea would talk about another generation of Israelites that still applies. He said, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads and it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up and already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. Sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. And then even if your grain grows, not gonna be anything you can get from it. The constant, unchecked sin of Israel made a conflict like this inevitable. It could only have gone this way. 
Because they were living in such wickedness and such rebellion against the Lord that one day someone was going to do something that shocked the rest of them. You reap what you sow. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. You sow to sin, you're going to reap trouble. And as we worry about our own nation, it's a, it's a sobering parallel that you hear people already talking about how long can we continue this angry night at each other's throat before shots start being fired. And I'm not one of those black-pilled conspiracy theorists that thinks it's on the way, but boy, it, it, it sure seems rather plausible, doesn't it? Now, why? Because of the various political machinations? No, because we have no moral compass anymore. We intentionally and deliberately abandoned it. So what's to stop brother from fighting against brother? Some people talk about this like it's a casual thing. Like not remembering that the last time we did this, more Americans died then than at any other time. Because if you're going to live in unrighteousness, then there's no unrighteousness that is going to be off limits to you when you're pushed. Rage and sensuality cultivated in everyday life will bring about conflict. Sin makes life worse. That's the definition of sin. Anything that makes life worse. There is no sin you can commit that will improve your life. I promise you that. Remember, God's commandments are not just right, they're good. We don't just obey them because they are His commandments. We obey them because they make life better. And even though this war was proper, they needed to go to war against Benjamin. They needed to be chastised and God was with them. However, no one was truly in the right here. You had varying degrees of unrighteousness and that is not sufficient for a nation or a church or a family to live by. Well, at least I'm not as crazy as Uncle Billy. Yeah, that's, he's the one with real problems. Or you know, uh, Cousin Susie, she's the one that's really got problems. God doesn't grade on a curve, friends. God grades you against the eternal righteousness of Jesus Christ. No one is truly in the right here. And this is only tragic. And as we're going to see, it was a bitter victory for these people. As we look verses 1 through 7 now. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? So Israel is lamenting over the loss of Benjamin to civil war. And they should be weeping over such a thing. Is there, there are not many things, I think, that are worse than civil war. It never fails that if I watch Gettysburg or I watch one of those old movies, Gone with the Wind, and you see Americans fighting each other, it makes me choke up every single time. The thought that, I would, that someone like me could be brought to the place where I'm going to fire a rifle against my brother, my countrymen. And they're feeling this loss, as they should. But they realize these Benjaminites, we killed all their daughters and wives. There's only 600 military-age men left. Who are they going to marry to perpetuate their name? Because we swore before the Lord that we would never let our daughters marry them. It's another grief. 
There's an example to be learned here about compassion after the victory has been won. But while this passage feels very religious, you've got to look at verse 3 and just roll your eyes. Oh, Lord, why has this happened? The answer is not difficult. And you would think that a prophet or at least a man of God in their ranks would have said, I know exactly what happened. Our sins finally caught up to us. And the Benjaminites weren't worse than we are. They were just the first. The Lord had said in Deuteronomy 28, verses 58 through 59, I only need to read two verses of this incredibly long passage to make the point. God said, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And that's exactly what happened. Their constant violations of the covenant brought sin into their lives and shame upon their names. What happened, Lord? You know good and well what happened, or at least you should. But even now, rather than repent, as they ought to do, they're only lamenting. Rather than repent, they chose to lament. They're sad, they're heartbroken, and, and you should be. But that's insufficient to be sad about something and not instead choose to tear your heart and your garments and say, Lord, forgive us, for we have done these things, and we are not guiltless in all of this. If we are only capable of grieving over the hurt that sin has caused and fail to rend our hearts and turn from the sin that caused it in the first place, we will learn nothing and we'll repeat the process. This is the constant struggle. And there are even some Christians that fall into this. Those that do ministry to those that have been ravaged by certain sins can be so overcome with compassion that they won't even tolerate a call out of the sin any longer. For example, those that deal with women that have, been, that have pregnancies and are trying to do pro-life, anti-abortion ministry. They say, well, we're not going to talk about the fact that they've sinned. We're not going to talk about this is a problem. We just want to help them where they are. So you're going to treat the symptoms and not the cause? Or those that say, I don't want to talk about uh, you know, how people need to stay together because divorce has hurt way too many people. We just got to love them. And they always want to bring up Jesus as the example. Didn't Jesus love people? Yeah, but Jesus is also the one that said, if you look with lust on, your, on that woman, you've committed adultery with her. Jesus was no pushover. Jesus was as kind and compassionate as anybody who's ever lived. He exemplified kindness and compassion. And yet, people came to Jesus and they fell on their face and said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. If all we can do is grieve over the hurt that sin caused, when someone comes to you and they say, look what's happening to me. I lost my job. Why? Well, I, I got caught stealing from the company. You can't just skip over that. You don't need to beat somebody up over something they already recognize, but you must make it abundantly clear. Hey, you're, you have the chance to learn the lesson. You better jolly well learn it. And don't do this again. Don't act like something is just happening to you when you did something to bring it about. If you're not going to repent and you're only going to lament, you're going to miss the whole point. Repentance is the beginning of any real transformation. You cannot just fix the issue. For example, the issue that's in the forefront of our days, you get sick of talking about it, but you can't stop. You can't just go out and say, sex change operations for children are wrong. You need to be able to teach God made men and women in his image and it is good going all the way back to that. You cannot overlook, as we talked about earlier, cohabitation and fornication and yet rant and rave against homosexuality. 
Are we teaching God's standard or are we just ranting against things that we don't like? Because I'll tell you what will happen. A generation will be accustomed to those things and won't have that same fire. And if we've not taught them to react to God's word and only to react to our own fury, if they don't have the same fury, they'll be lost. You cannot just fix the issue. You've got to fix the root. And that is not just through lamentation. It comes through repentance. If you've broken your marriage, if you've broken your home, if you've wrecked your life, because of your sin, don't think you can skip over the repentance part, the turning from your sin part, the changing your mentality part, because that's what got you there in the first place. If you are driving down the road and your GPS is taking you somewhere, and you say, I don't want to go this way anymore, and you turn around, what's your GPS going to say? Recalculating. We're still going the same place, and it's going to take you a different way now. You've got to change everything, friends. In the same way, if you turn off the GPS, but you keep on driving the same direction, it's not going to help you any. Repentance is lacking in this story. Verse 8. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, Israelites, with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, but there were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. How about the compassion for your own countrymen that you just destroyed and executed the haram that was exclusive for the Canaanites? Verse 16, so the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel have sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. This is where rigid religion gets you instead of walking in obedience to God's grace and his word. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us. Because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? The people say, well, we can't give them... We swore an oath that we would not give them any of our wives. Is there anybody in Israel that did not come up and take that oath? Yes, there's one city, Jabesh Gilead. All right, go kill all those people and take all the virgin girls from that city. And they did that. And they gave them to the Benjaminites, but there wasn't enough. 200 left. So what else do we do? Well, let's wait until this is all calmed down and then tell the Benjaminites, when you see the ladies come out for one of their festivals, one of their ceremonial dances... 
jump out from behind the bushes, kidnap them and take them home and forcibly make them your wives. And when they complain, we'll tell the men, look, just please just let them have these daughters because you're not violating your oath because you didn't give them to them. They stole them from you, so this will square everything away. This is absolutely sick and perverted. Don't get it wrong. See, people try to defend this like it was righteous. It's not. It's awful. It has no bearing on how love and marriage ought to be. From the heights of the beginning of this book of Othniel and Oxa, him going out to slay the, the wicked people in the land and win a city in her name, and then her working hard to bring the city together, all oh, the ideal male and female relationship, it's deteriorated down through Barak and through Deborah, all the way down through Samson and Delilah, to now look at how women are being treated in this story. We need to make sure that we don't get so opposed to feminism, which we should be opposed to, because it's not biblical, that we start thinking that it's somehow godly for a man to treat his wife harshly. Like that's the answer to that problem. It's certainly not. Here's how you know that Israel has learned nothing. They commit sin to cover another sin. Benjamin had brought this upon themselves. Why not inquire of the Lord and see what God says? Instead, we're going to pillage our own people and effectively rape our own daughters in order to make sure that our land doesn't die out. The cycle of judges is absolutely exemplified here. Because their morality was corrupt, even their virtue was evil. Even when they're trying to do the right thing, they commit a grievous sin. And this is what judges has been all about, just getting worse and worse with every turn of the wheel. And I must say, we are living in days such as these. We tolerate sin at every level. And then some grievous ill, some grievous sin happens, and we panic. And then we start to come up with solutions to it that are just as wicked. Already on the horizon, you can see the response to the, the postmodern woke ideology. And it's just as nasty. It's just as nasty. It's a different kind of nasty, but we're going to have to stand against that too. These people that are saying we've got to push back against this, this weird definition of racism that is in fact pushing everybody off into all these corners. There are people that come roaring back and say, no, we're going to look at everybody exactly the way we are. And that's why our people need to be on top. Or you look at the sexual morality that has come and the, the shock against transgenderism and all this. And people's response to that is what we need is some red hot blooded American lust again. You know, beautiful women and strong men and just engaging in all sorts of sexuality with each other. People come out and say, Gen Z and millennials are not having as much premarital sex as the previous generations. What's gone wrong? That's our solutions. And that's what's coming. And it will provide a corrective to this other thing that we've been battling and is also wicked. But my friends, do not get caught up in the hype and step off of the standard of the word of God. You are going to end up when this is over with some allies you'd rather wish you didn't have. And you are going to be called names that absolutely have no application to you by people who used to be your allies. Because you're standing on the word of God. I can see this coming and it's alarming. And it's also alarming the kinds and the names of people that are going along with it. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We can't let the cure be worse than the, than, than the disease. You cannot deal with a problem in your house, with your family, your marriage, or your children by doing something just as grievous and just as harsh. 
We stand on the word. We don't stand on anybody's ideas. Christians are supposed to be the plumb line for a nation. And when things swing back and forth, there will be times in history where they are closer to the word of God and some days where they are far on the other side. And then it will swing back the other way. We have to keep plodding along that narrow road and die for it if we must. If we do not invite God back into our everyday decisions, and I'm talking about the way you talk to people at the supermarket level, they're never going to see true change. We're going to fix these big, wicked, evil things. Okay, but how did we get there in the first place? If you don't fix that, you're just going to rebuild it all over again. And it might look different, and it might sound different, and it might use different words, but it will be the same wickedness. Satan is not really picky about which poison you drink. Verse 25, we close the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The shock and disgust you are feeling and the unsettled nature of your heart right now is exactly how you are supposed to feel coming to the end of this book. You're supposed to be revolted that Israel would do something like this. This is the conclusion. It, setting up, canonically, it's setting us up for the arrival of David and the monarchy when they will establish a king and righteousness will be restored. But you must remember that judges is all about failure. Failure even in victory. Make sure that you do not look to judges for your example, unless it's a bad one. <laughs> because Israel had rejected the Lord, they faced his judgment. And it's already happening to, to us now, nationally, but also just in our own families. You can see this happen. When families start to neglect the small things, even things like church attendance and reading their Bibles, change starts to happen. Whatever stage you're at, whether there's pervasive low-level sin or there's a grievous evil or we're having a shocked reaction to something or even facing something like a civil war, conflict, a lack of repentance, a worse solution to a bad problem, the answer is always repentance. Return unto the Lord. The answer to your family or your church or community or national symptom is not a policy change. It's revival. Revival. We used to talk about revival as a thing that wouldn't it be great to see it someday, but more and more I'm realizing we have no hope unless the Lord chooses to pour out a renewed move of his Holy Spirit on this earth. The pastors at the pastors meeting this last uh, week were praying for exactly that, praying that this is what we need. Even though, for the most part, we're leading good, godly churches. You look out, as the church is supposed to be, to be those watchmen on the wall. And we cried, until we return unto the Lord, we're not going to see anything different. But the good news is that there is hope for those who will repent. Second Chronicles 7.14, the Lord said, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. But it starts with prayer, seeking his face and turning from your wicked ways, humbling yourselves. We can return. We can see restoration. I've not given up. If I sound pessimistic, it's because it's a rather pessimistic passage. Wouldn't you agree? But the change is not going to start with Washington, friends. It's going to start with you in your house. You need to see the revival and restor restoration of love of Christ and obedience in your house as absolutely essential to the restoration of your country, your family, and your church. Stop sinning. 
he said to himself, but also to all of us here. If you have a shocked feeling at a horrible thing you hear about, let it turn you to Christ. Let it hit your heart and not just your stomach. Correct the problem, yes. Fix those problems. We need solutions. We even need laws, believe it or not. But you've got to fix the heart first. You fix the heart and the laws don't get changed, it doesn't matter. Things will still be all right. And you can pass all the laws you want, but if people's hearts don't change, you're just going to be right back where you started. I don't believe the Lord is done with us. And by us, I mean Calvary Chapel Trustville, but also the United States of America. If we will humble ourselves before him. But friends, sin leads to civil war as sure as any GPS. These are spiritual matters, not social ones, not even moral ones. Lean into the spiritual. Determine that in 2024, I will not be drawn out of the Holy Spirit's influence in my life. Think about these things from an eternal perspective. Learn to follow Christ. Cry out to God for His mercy because the good news is if you do, He will not turn you away.